fraud. It's an aggressive word even by itself. It conjures images of massive Ponzi schemes or even memories of your last trip to a car dealership. But what if you could use those skills for yourself? Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Dawn Rasmussen. Dawn has spent her life tracking down and exposing fraud in the corporate setting. She is also an author of the same topic and joins us today to show us how we can use fraudster techniques to enhance our lives. Let's commit ethical fraud. Is that right? Can I legally advise this? Never mind. Ignore that whole sentence and enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Don Rasmussen. Hi, Colton. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm super excited to be here and talk about some fraud and some tips that can help people out. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself and what you do for people? Okay, so my name is Don Rasmussen, like you said, and I'm a CPA and I'm also a certified fraud examiner. And I'm also of the book 12, author of the book 12 for 12, which is about a fraud examiner who's on the case. So one of the things that I like to talk to people about is how my experience with fraud has helped me to be able to help people in their normal lives. Like I've developed all these rules where for like negotiation tactics and have some examples of how people can get what they want by ethically using the skills of the fraudster. So, and I really enjoyed your show with Chad, the locksmith guy, because I just have to say really quickly that um, the only time I've ever disagreed with him about needing a lock picking set was when I was on an audit and I had 30 locked filing cabinets and nobody was around to help me get into them. But I managed. So yeah. So that's kind of me. I was born like, I, it's like I was popped out of the womb with like this little radar inside of me that like just looks for fraud and finds it. And um, every job I've ever had, I find fraud. And and then I kind of, it kind of worked my way into becoming certified as a fraud examiner, studying criminology and learning the mindset of, of a con artist and uh, how he works and saying, hey, we ordinary folks yeah, we can benefit from this without, you know, swindling anybody. So that's kind of me. Yeah, no, that's interesting that you're like, I've just always had this knack for finding it. Yeah. (laughs) And that just like worked its way into your, like your natural career. Yeah. Like my very first job out of school was um, just working for, I was actually working for a nonprofit organization. And just so you know, like, I don't want to have issues with confidentiality. So I'll probably leave names and companies and stuff out of that, no, of <laughs> out of things that I tell. So, but uh, yeah, and I, part of my responsibilities at that job was doing the inventory. <laughs> and um, I knew there was something wrong, but I wasn't experienced. And I just like kept clamping down on controls to the point where like people were starting to hate me. <laughs> and I remember the, controller came in and he's like, Don, we got to talk about this. Do I need to take this duty away from you? And then years later, 
I, um, I was at my first day of work doing tax audit, actually, and they had never called for my references. And so on my first day of work, they were like, oh, we better hurry and take care of this problem. And so they called to get a reference from my old employer, of course. And, and he was like, go get her. I got to talk to her right now. So they pulled me into this room and he was, and he was like, do you remember all those problems with the inventory? Like, yes. And he's like, well, your, your efforts paid off because there was some fraud happening. This manager was stealing from us for years. And, and because of my, my, my diligent and ridiculous efforts, um, they were able to prosecute with, um, properly. And so he's like, there's your, there's your reference. So yeah, hire this girl. So, um, that's kind of how the beginning was for me. So I've worked a lot of, it is fraud cases are always so interesting because you can't come up with how clever people can be or stupid. Like you just, you just can't come up with that. Even like, like as a fiction writer, I, I wish I could be that clever. So, but, um, but like one of the things that I really like to talk about is just how it can help people. Because I remember I worked as like, even though I've always been a fraud examiner kind of for about the last decade of my life, um, I sometimes have like real jobs in between there. Like I was working as a corporate controller and if a, you know, a fraud job came my way, I could do that. And I remember being on the phone this one time. And I was just kind of listening in in the background. I don't even think people knew I was there, but but I was supposed to be there. And I remember them talking about, we need to coach these people out of our organization. And I remember being just absolutely disgusted. I like, I hate that mindset because if somebody's there, like in today's world, they talk about the quiet quitters, you know, the people who are just kind of they've given up and they just earn their wage. Um, however they must. And, um, and I remember thinking, you know, I've always thought of them, like we've all heard of white collar crimes, we've all heard of blue collar crimes and even the pink collar crime seems all illustrious. Um, we can talk about that a little bit, but I've always thought of them as yellow colored crimes in my head because they're basically not accomplishing much, but also at the same time I use yellow because like, Oh, this person lacks the courage to make a meaningful change in their life. And I think that using some of my skills can, can help those kinds of folks. And also anybody who feels like they don't have a voice or that it's not, their voice doesn't matter. So yeah, that's kind of what I'm here to talk about, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all very interesting. Yeah. When you said like, oh, white collar cl- crimes and blue collar crimes, I'm like, yeah, I'm familiar with, I mean, white collar crimes for the most part, I suppose it's the same thing on the blue collar end. And then you're like, oh, and these others. I'm like, what are the others? <laughs> oh, what's the difference well, in all the uh, color? Yeah, crimes? I'll give you a quick. So, like a pink colored crime is more, you'll usually find that in like smaller organizations with 500 or fewer employees, where like the person, there aren't enough controls in place because, oh, it was a startup at one point. The owner gave a lot of power to this person that was trusted. And it doesn't have to be a woman like that coin was turned back, turned back like in the (laughs) that term was coined back in the 1980s when like generally your administrative assistant was a woman or your secretary or some overly trusted accountant. Um, There were no controls. They had 
just too much power. So like in fraud, we have this thing called the fraud triangle, which is, you know, one of them is, oh, opportunity. One of them is rationalization. And one of them is pressure. So like if there's an opportunity available and a person is able and they find themselves under financial pressure, they can rationalize it. Oh, grandma, she needs that surgery. I'll pay it back at a later date, you know, type of thing. So that's how the beginnings of a pink collar crime begins. Um, and, and in my industry, they're called advertisers because usually they have a hard time hiding their efforts because a lot of them will start wearing flashy clothes or um, buying new cars or taking fancy trips that you're like, can you really afford that on your salary? Um, and there's the usual story of, oh, I inherited this from so-and-so and like, advertisers are obvious spotters. Like I, a lot of times I'll walk into um, like a new place where I'm going to do audit and like, I'm immediately on my like Sherlock Holmes alert, you know, and I'm like, Oh, the secretary cannot afford those shoes. And Oh, you know, and I'm like, I'm, I'm instantly like suspicious of every human being, but I don't let it show of course, because if I'm doing my job, right, everyone hates me in the very beginning. They hate me and I'm okay with that. But by the end, they start to see that, oh, my methods are swift and effective. And um, and they're, they're starting to appreciate that, oh, I, I see what she was trying to do there. She wasn't trying to hate me. <laughs> she was trying to provoke me. And, um, and it can be a lot of fun. But also, like, it's hard because ultimately somebody's life is about to go down the drain. And it's never any fun, that part of it. So, yeah. No, let's, you're let's like... Get me back on track here. No, I think it's, I think this is a great track to be on where you're like, look, if I come into the office, there's no reason for you to fear me unless you're committing fraud. Right. Basically. Like, or Yeah. They won't even know what I'm there to do. Sometimes I just show up wearing a delivery uniform. Half the time I'm undercover because I don't want to be noticed. I don't want to be anybody they think is important or that they need to be on their, on their guard about because one of the greatest tools that most fraud examiners never use is called collusion and fraudsters use it all the time. They collude with other people. That's how like say somebody in the office needs a signature in order to do this and the controls are too tight for them to commit their frauds. And so they collude with someone else who has the, the power that they do need, whether or not that person is aware that they're being manipulated or not, or if they're in on it, you know? So like a lot of times I'll go in there and I'll be like, Hey, how? Let's be friends. I'll, I'll know. I'll look around. I'll do my research. I usually know every person before I ever walk into a job. I know who they are and what they do. And we're, you know, a little bit more than they probably want me to know. <laughs> and, um, and so I'll find someone who is in a pivotal position with social abilities, like a informal type of power. And, and you would be surprised what you can learn about the place so fast doing, doing that. So skill of the fraudster right there in use to find the fraudster. So it's a lot of fun. I, I enjoy my work. But can I um, maybe talk about some of the rules that other people could implement um, in their lives? To Yeah, by all to, means. Um, okay. Um, so I developed these five rules of negotiating skills. And it all began in my last year of grad school in my very last semester. And um, it changed my life because 
I'm a shy girl. Like I grew up, I'm like the sixth of nine kids in a very loud household. <laughs> and I just never thought my voice mattered at all. In fact, half, half my life, I felt like I had to apologize for my very existence. And it's just the way life, you know, sometimes you start off and our insecurities are the things that turn us into what we are. So I was in this, it was a negotiations class and I wish I could remember my professor's name. I actually tried to find his syllabus, but you know, it's long gone. So kudos out to the professor whose name shall not be known today, but he had a women's day and he was like, guys, this is an assignment for you. Out you go. And he had a little conversation with all the women because women never ask for what they want. It is just ingrained, built to us. We have to work up to it. We have to practice. And and um, and he's like, listen, ladies, I have an assignment for you because you girls never ask for what you really want. So you got to go ask for three things you think you can't get and you better get it. And then he gave us some very important information. He said, no isn't no until you've heard it four times. And that's my first rule. And it's his rule, but I've adopted it because my study of criminology has taught me that fraudsters use that rule because they know that it's really hard for people to say no again. And then when they're more charming and you have to say it a third time, it's really hard for people. A lot of people who haven't practiced saying no, they'll give in just because they can't handle the pressure of it. So, but by the time a person has to say it for the fourth time, boy, do they mean it. And they don't want to talk about it again. So that's the first rule. No isn't no to have heard it four times. And you got to be charming. And you've got to show the mutual benefits of working together on whatever it is that you're trying to get to. Um, I have a little story that kind of goes behind that. And you guys might, I don't know, you're, you guys might all think I'm half lunatic, but I think I am. It's, it's part of my my MO, I guess. Um, sometimes when I call up my family, I'll be like, well, I've done something. And they all just kind of brace themselves. <gasps> okay, what have you done? <laughs> um, so like a fraud examiner has to learn how to provoke response out of people. So like we spend a lot of time learning about psychology of how people work. I'm trained in soft interrogations. And um, I remember one time I was called in on a tax audit where they had like some suspicious fraud and the number one rule of doing soft interrogations. See, I'm off on a tangent. I hope you don't mind. Oh, it's all good. Story in a minute. It happens all the time. But, <laughs> so they, they called me and they're like, Dawn, we need your special brand of whatever it is you do. And, um, but I don't think a lot of people realize that the key to, to a good interrogation is a little respect and preparation. I never walk in without half knowing what the answer should be. And I remember looking at this particular statute in question um, from the, 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 the revenue manual. And, um, and when I looked at the rules, I realized that there was a slight misinterpretation from the auditor's perspective. And there was a slight inter misinterpretation from the taxpayer's perspective. I'm sorry, please no flogging because I got out of that life because it's not a happy life. Um, I, I like to add joy to people's lives. But I went in and I just asked him the same question three times. And I realized that I needed to emphasize like one word until everybody got it. 
And um, because I didn't know how else to articulate it. So I said the question and everybody kind of rolled their eyes like, let me ask that a million times. And, and I said it again with emphasis. And I was like, you need to hear me. And I said it a third time. And the guy looked at me and he's like, oh, yeah, you've got me. How can I avoid jail time? <laughs> and like, and that was the end of that. But preparation, guys, you don't go in to ask for something you want without being prepared. You think about it and, um, and do your homework. So, but back to the first rule, I wanted to have an interview with somebody of great importance who was a CEO of a company and I needed information out of him for a case that I was working. And, um, and it had nothing to do with him. So I don't want there to be any kind of slandering here, but I couldn't get past his gatekeepers. And I was like, well, I need this. So I need to get creative here. And I put my head together and I was like, well, what would a fraudster do? And like when all electronic devices or communications fail, they turn to the U.S. mail. It never fails. It always gets processed. And so I, <laughs> oh boy, please don't kick me off your show. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I got one of those big trifold, you know, those cardboard things that kids do their science projects on heard of those right you know what yeah. i'm talking about i know what you're talking about and um and i made a little website with some tantalizing information and i wrote the name of the website on that thing and i drew a big giant question mark in the middle of that thing and i stuck it in the mail and i mailed it to him and um so this ceo i know it sounds ridiculous but his gatekeepers were very firm and so he got this big thing in the mail, probably thought it was a birthday card or something. And he opened it up, found a giant question mark, looked up my website and proceeded to call me. So it was my way of being able to have an important conversation that I needed to have. And so like, if you're out there and you're trying to build your business or you're trying to say, hey, how can I do this important thing? Then like sit down and say a lot of times. So one of my other rules is, to find some leverage and to use it. That's very important because a fraudster never hesitates to use leverage when he needs to. Oh, he'll squeeze you. But we as good, decent, human, moral beings who aren't sociopaths, we have a hard time doing that. Like we, we don't wanna say to somebody, well, I have this thing hanging over you, but like you don't do it that way. The leverage is the message that I put on the website it was tantalizing and I knew it would help him. So you always have to look at how you can help that person's customer or that person's family or that person's whatever it is that's motivating them in life. You can help them and that gives you leverage. For example, so when I first got my CPA license, I was like this lowly clerk who was way underpaid and, and starving to death, quite frankly. And I was like, well, I've worked really hard for this thing. I spent a year of my life basically eating, working, studying, and nothing else. But I passed my exams and I was like, I'm going to look for another job if they aren't going to, you know, help me out. So what I did is I, I just said, okay, what leverage do I have? Well, I have possible jobs that I could apply for. So I printed off like 10 different jobs and I averaged out the income for those. And I took it to my boss and I said, hey, 
this is how much I think I could make if I went somewhere else. And by the end of the day, I had achieved the, the, the salary that I had asked for. So like, that's leverage. But like, everyone doesn't always have leverage of like, oh, I achieved this giant thing. And now I'm going to use it, you know. So like, a regular person, like, for example, my professor told us to go and get three things that we wanted. And I was like, well, I don't even know what to ask for. But I needed a few extra days on a paper that I was writing. <laughs> and this professor never granted extra time. So I was like, hey, I'm going to practice on this guy. Um, so I went in and, and he said no the first time around. And I was like, oh, no, what have I? Why did I just come in and say it? I like had to learn my lessons about preparing. And, and so then I realized that he was keen on new ideas. And so I went in and I was like, listen, I have this different twist on things and I need to research it out. And he was like, okay. And um, because I knew what interested him, I was able to get an extension on my paper. And then I really had to up my game on my paper and I'm pretty sure I disappointed him. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I feel like I'm doing all the talking here. Do you have any questions for me or should I just keep going? No, I mean, there's, there's some things in there that I think you know, something I commonly hear from people, especially when they're, they're leaving their job is mm -hmm. like, yeah, I did this job and they never appreciated me. And I developed the entire system that their, their whole company or section runs on. And now that I'm gone, I'm taking it with me because I developed it and they don't know how to use it. So it's just going to uh -huh. fall apart. And I'm like, you know, you could, tell them that uh, number one uh, they're probably going to train someone else just in case you leave but that's like a good fail safe but also if you put that much work in and you're the only person who can do it they may not know that like they may right. just think like oh it's a simple like they did one step differently or something and i'll be able to look at it and tell what's different and not like uh -huh. no i programmed the entire excel sheet that you use <laughs> yes I think that there's, I think you have a very valid point there. And I know that those stories are true because that's what's happened many times in my career. Like, so I worked for this company that was bought out by a public company and we had this great little company. And then, you know, the public company comes in and ruins them. They shut them down. They, they move them elsewhere. Like they just, they do. And, um, and they, I knew our day was coming and so I, I prepared for it and I was, because they were public, our tiny little portion of their public company had to have a signature when they filed their SEC filings for just our company. And so there were two people in our company that signed that, me and the, the CFO. And um, they had to file a paper with um, the SEC to change the name of the person who did that but they had done everything so hastily that I knew they hadn't. So I went onto the database and checked it out. Sure enough, no filing. Right. So I use that. Like I tried to be nice. Like one of my other rules is to be diplomatic and to practice, practice once a week, asking for something you don't think you can get and be amazed by how many times you get it. And so like, instead of going in and saying, well, you need my signature. I went in and like, you know, you catch more flies with honey. It's a true statement. And, and, and I asked for what I wanted and cause they were shutting us down. And, and I said, listen, 
you can't get rid of me. You need me for two more months because you need my signature. And then the severance package that you're offering me is pitiful, but you need my signature. And so we were able to work out a great deal, but I didn't have anywhere to work because they were shutting down the building and my housing lease was ending and I wasn't about to start a new lease. If I didn't have a job. <laughs> so I was essentially homeless. And I remember like telling myself, okay, be brave. They loaded all this equipment in the back of my car and was like, go find somewhere to work. You're done in two months. You'll have your signature. Here's your severance pay. And I ended up living on a boat with like Wi-Fi and doing my work from there. And it was a great adventure, but all because I had the courage to, to use my leverage and I was diplomatic about it, you know, and, um, and kind about it, but uh, the same saying, this yeah. is where we're at. Well, none so, of these have been like mean because when I think most people think <laughs> of fraud is they're like, it's either super sneaky and underhanded, which like, yeah, <laughs> probably. Cause you said like a lot of people are very clever about it, you know, or it's just like, you know, it's so aggressive that you can't fight your way around it. But yours mm-hmm. are like, just bring something up where you're like, Hey, I would like X thing. And they're mm-hmm. like, no. And you're like, okay, well I need X thing because. And then yes. they're like, no. And you're like, okay, you need me to have X thing because, and now it's like, once you get enough <laughs> steps in here, they're like, God, I've said no a lot. And I think I might be wrong. Like you've just put doubt in their head because they're like, usually I don't have to say no more than once. This is unusual. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. I like it. You're catching on. So that actually brings me to my next rule which is to always ask for more than what you want by at least 20%. And I'll tell you my thinking behind that. So you're the average like fraudster. If you go in to question somebody and you suspect that they've taken a certain amount of money, you never truly know the extent of what they've done. And they will never admit to it ever. Most people only ever admit to 50, 60% of what they've done. So you have to say, what do I think they really took? And then you double it and then you let them because it's so much easier. So somebody, a person cannot be enabled to make a confession until they feel morally justified. So you have to give them moral justification. They don't care what it is. Any story you give them will do. So like, say you're questioning somebody and they say, and and you say, gosh, look, I know you're not a bad guy. I know you didn't mean this. You just got in over your head. These things happened in your life. That's so understandable. I'm pretty sure that like you got in over your head probably to the tune of X number of dollars, double what you think. And then that gives them a glimmer of hope. Oh, this person sees. Yes, they understand. And uh, and then it gives them opportunity to confess without um, feeling degraded. But they will always latch on to saying if they're if they're at that point where like they're either going to cry or stop talking. That's kind of the point that people get to um, because I'll just give you a few more pointers here. Yeah, <laughs> so like when you're interviewing somebody, you can't ever let them get out the words. I'm innocent if you know they're not because they'll stick to that story forever. But if you cut them off and you keep asking them hard questions over and over again. 
at some point they will stop being able to to because it takes physical toll on their body to tell fibs. It does. It's exhausting. And so that's why police will interrogate people for hours and hours and hours because only an innocent person will get louder when you accuse them of something. A guilty person, it's taking a toll on them and it's making them less and less and less till they become silent or start to cry. Those are the two kind of main options there. But you could, if you give them a number and they took a lot less than that, they'll latch onto it and they'll say, oh, it no, it was not that much. And it gives them a chance to look good and to feel a little morally better than, than what, you know, they could be. So, um, yeah. so that's why the rule is you have to ask for more than what you want. It's the same kind of thinking when you go in to ask for something or to try and, you know, negotiate mutually beneficial situation for you and somebody else, because then it gives them a chance to say, well, how about this? I'll counter down to here. And then you're like, so got what I want, you know? So. I mean, that is even like a standard practice that I have heard of having no experience in politics that like is a pretty common <laughs> political thing where they're like, look, we're going to ask for $3 trillion worth of stuff. And realistically, we're hoping to get like $500 billion worth of stuff. I think that was something just here recently where they were like trying to pass, you know, something roughly 3 billion and they got like 400 400 billion instead of three trillion and they were so like like, sweet. They were like yeah we, got we really only everything. needed a hundred million yeah <laughs> and it's like i mean the, their version of doing it i think is shady and really bad because they ask for things people genuinely want just so that they can knock them off the table by like okay those are the big ticket items well let's push those off the table how's the little stuff sound but that's huh. a, a whole nother story <laughs> it is um it's hard to know the motives of a, of a, you know, a politician other than to stay in office. Um, I don't enjoy politics, but, but I will say that, yes, they do use those rules of asking for way more. They probably do it by like a hundred times more than what they really want. So, yeah, I think it's um, different, you know, for like different groups, some people are going to ask for, you know, just one extra thing just so that they can remove it and look like they're, like, okay, well, I, I'll meet oh, you in well, the middle. I'll remove the I've thing. made concession for you. Yes. Uh -huh. yeah. And then others are going to go way above and beyond just so that they're like, look, man, you've got me down to to 10% of what I was asking for. Like, this, is, this isn't really doing much for me at this point. Like, I'm doing you a favor. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yes, exactly it. If you can. So one of the rules, that's actually interesting that you say that because in implementing fraud controls, one of the top, one of the rules is that perception matters. You can have a camera that's a total dummy up there, but if people think it's real, it will change their behavior. And like a lot of people will put in their policies like surprise inspections or surprise audits. And if people are aware that that's there, whether or not you implement that regularly, like that perception of that perception can change the behavior. It, it, it's a deterrent for that opportunity point of the fraud triangle. So like, I think that they're using perception of, oh, look, I've turned this story around. It's, it, uh, now I'm giving you something, but really it's, you know, quite the opposite. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's a strategic move. And one of the rules of negotiations is that 
you can always use what your opponent doesn't know against them. So it's not very advisable if you have to negotiate with them on a regular basis. Yeah, it, it's it'll work once, but if they continue to see a pattern, they're going to be like, are you manipulating me? Mm-hmm. You're like, oh boy, is this a long-term relationship I have to keep <laughs> us both in? Because that's bad. Yes. Yeah, because building trust with someone that you negotiate with on a regular basis is super important. So, okay. Do you want me to keep rolling along or do you have any more yeah. comments there? No, I mean, okay. if you've got, you've got something else to roll with that too. Okay, awesome. So my next rule... And maybe it should be the first one, but for some reason I, I put it last. But to me, it's really important to always listen to your gut. Like I do. My little radar inside tells me when something is wrong. And the minute that feeling comes into me, I, I take a step back and I'm like, what's going on here? And I evaluate and I'll take a breath. I'll take a breather. I'll step out of the room. But like, I remember... Um, if someone's time pressuring you, don't let them say, um, I think that will still be good tomorrow. I'm going to think about this overnight. Like, but like, here's the thing. If everything is on the line and you're about to get the most important thing that's ever happened to you. And if it goes against your personal belief system, you have to walk away. You must walk away and you will never regret it. And it always usually comes back to you in a better way. People respect truth. They respect when you say, like, even if it's really hard, if you say, well, this doesn't work for me personally because my belief system is different. And like, people respect that. And they'll usually come back and say, oh, well, let's work with you this way then. But like, don't ever sell your soul for a nickel. Like that's my mom's rule in life. So don't sell your soul for a nickel. I mean, stick to your beliefs. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. That goes back to like the trust thing. When we said like, oh, if you're building a long-term relationship, it's good to have trust. It's also good for you to show them that you have like, you know, some kind of, of rule set or belief system or, you know, morals in some cases where you're like, look, this is. I'm not comfortable with this because like, I don't think it's a good thing because they're going Uh to remember that going forward and be like, you can trust them because I know that they'll do the right thing. Even if it's like just a gray area, they will still choose to do the right thing. That's right. I remember I worked with this attorney for a company and it turned out that they were doing some things that they shouldn't have. And I'm a fraud examiner. I can't work with people who are doing shady things. So I fired them as my client. They were my biggest client. They kept my business alive. And I was like, what am I going to do? And, but I knew that things would work out for me. Like I just, I just know that that that's what's going to happen. And so I did, I said, I'm sorry, I can't work with you. You'll have to make these adjustments. Otherwise I can no longer put my name on your financials. And their attorney called and he was like, Dawn, how can we stop you from doing this? I'm like, well, you can not, backdate checks for starters and he said well I don't think I can persuade them to that and so I said well you know I'm sorry we're just gonna have to go separate ways and I wish you well and um you know I am bound by confidentiality blah 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 right but because of that he sent me so much work 
he sent me work. And like, if people asked, oh, I need a good CPA or I need somebody who can help me with this problem. Like he would send them to me because he knew that I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to like take any crap. In fact, my first interview, when I first meet a new client, it's terrible what I do. (laughs) (laughs) I like, as soon as I realize someone's trying to hire me for something, I have to know that they're not the guilty party. A lot of times people will try to please their board by hiring somebody in and they're, they're the troublemaker to start with. And suddenly I'm like looking them up and down and I'm circling around them and I'm like, huh. And <laughs> I start asking them hard questions and I'm like, and so I have three rules whenever someone hires me. My contract is like 70 pages long, but it basically boils down to this. I find what I find and I report it that way. Number two if any portion of your records or business is withheld from me access wise, our contract is null and void and you forfeit your fees. And number three, I always try to keep things under, like usually people hire me because they want to keep things quiet. So that's kind of, that's kind of the gist of it. But so they know coming in that I'm not going to, that I can't have any bias or any opinion. I'm not working for anybody. I'm just, collecting facts and reporting them and doing it in a way where chain of custody isn't breached. Yeah. In case, you know, it has to go to court. Of course. Anyway. <laughs> and you're like, look, I have to have these things in place because like you said, some people are very clever and some mm-hmm. people are very dumb and they're <laughs> like, boy, I'm a, you know what I'm going to do? A guilty person would never hire an investigator. So I'm going to hire that and then they'll Mm -hmm. never see it coming because I'm the one that hired them. And you're like, you're the first person I'm looking at. (laughs) Right. Uh huh. No, it's so true. But speaking of dumb things, I actually heard a friend of mine was telling me about a case where, and I actually helped work on it for a little bit, but, um, kind of in a backward way, but, um, they had, it was for a big mine and a big piece of machinery had gone missing, like to the tune of several million dollars kind of piece of equipment. What ended up happening was that the logistics, I'm like, I'm like, well, what would Sherlock Holmes do? Of course, because, <laughs> yeah. you know, everybody loves him, but I'm just joking. But, um, but he always looked at the logistics. And I'm like, how do you move a piece of equipment like that? And in the end, it turned out this employee that worked the crane said, hey, I worked the crane. And that looks expensive. And there's a fence right there because mines move as they, as they mine. And so he was able to just pick it up and put it on the other side of the fence. And then he sold it on eBay to us for $10,000. (laughs) And he gave instructions. You have to pick it up yourself here. We're like, okay. Um, And like, it was an easy case, you know, shut and close pretty fast, but like, that was actually a really smart move logistically if he just had been smart enough to even know what he had and what it was worth and who to sell it to, you know? So that, yeah, or um, that's like a first time criminal and you're like, <laughs> look, I stole this diamond and you're like, okay, what are you going to do with the diamond? And they're like, I don't know. You think I can get five grand for it? And you're like, well, it's the size of your fist. So I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fencing. Like, People like, I love the movies, how they like, oh, I'm going to steal all these jewels and diamonds. Like people don't even know how hard it is to move that stuff. 
like it's not easy to sell and that's where usually you get caught is in the fencing of of, of the items so can i just throw in like another thing <laughs> that's for, not really please. in my five rules yeah okay so if we go back to the whole thing of where my firm was talking about coaching people out of the organization i just really like everything inside of me is just like that's just that's just like not even right like you, you help you help people so i decided i knew who was on their list so i decided that i was going to use my skills to try and help those persons not get coached out of the program so i like i kind of went and like just made some made friends and and then one day i kind of introduced like listen so i i have this rule like fraudsters how they prepare for a role that they're going to play is that they live it for at least 45 days. Like they're prepared before they walk in. They know who you are, who your whole family is. If, if a con man cares enough about you to like make you a target, it's because you've got something he really, really wants, usually your money, and, and he's prepared for it. So I was like, you know, in my life, whenever I think I want to do something, I do the same thing. I try it out. I tested out for 45 days. So I started, I started like talking to people about their passions. And I was like, if somebody really wants to be a photographer enough to get up at three o'clock in the morning to hike a mountain so that they can get a picture of the golden hour, you know, they really want that. And so I tell people, okay, if you want to find your passion, if you're not sure what it is, like I had this whole big ridiculous system because like I love math. And I think it can solve all the world's problems, right? Like answers all the questions, math. And, um, okay, what do you think you want to do? And um, try it out for 45 days. And if you can do it for one hour for 45 days, you're onto something. And uh, it really helped people to say, hey, maybe I could change my position to do more this thing than that. And like some of those people didn't have to get coached out of our, pro out of our company because they were able to see a different way to add value that made them not feel like quiet quitters or yellow colic criminals, you know? So against themselves, I mean, when I say that. So. Yeah, of course, where they're just like, oh, I don't actually care as little as I thought I did. <laughs> or yeah. I, have, I have something else I would like to do, and this is helping me do it. Yes. The other thing that I would always advise them is like not to tell anybody because you just don't need any naysayers in your life when you're testing out a new thing, you know, like and not to go overboard. You don't have to go buy a big camera. You just got to see if you're willing to climb a mountain and take pictures <laughs> or whatever you think your passion might be. Like for me, like I was a writer. I, I started writing because my grad school professor, another one pulled me aside and was like, Dawn, you can write. And so he told me that he was going to add two credits to my degree where if I finished my first novel, which believe me was really terrible and should never be read um, and should remain forever buried under my mattress. <laughs> but it gave me the start that I needed. And like, you know, now I, now I write fun novels about, about a fraud examiner. So yeah, check me out. Thanks for the little plug there. <laughs> no, of course. We'll, and we'll get to that. But there's, oh, okay. also, there's also a lot of that where I, I don't know where I read it anymore. But, um, and maybe I was listening to like a TED talk. I, I listened to so many things I can't even remember anymore. But they had said, know, like, right? 
if you're going to do something, especially if you think it's big or impressive, don't tell anyone about it because you telling someone about it gives you the same like dopamine hit that actually doing it does. So you'll end up not doing it because you already told people and they said like, oh, good for you. That's awesome. Instead of doing it and then getting the feedback that's like, oh, that's awesome. Oh my gosh. That's actually really good. Um, That's actually really good. Thank you for sharing that with me because I think that is true. There is a letdown of telling somebody something you're doing. And I remember reading a thing that said, don't talk about it. Just be about it. And I've been that way most of my life because I'm just that way. You have to kind of be a little bit secretive to do the kind of work that I do. And um, a lot of times I'll make a little post online or something and they'll be like, what? Where have you been? Like, and like, I can't believe you did this thing that nobody knew about. It does. I can see how like it would rob you of the victory of actually achieving early by, by announcing it. So that's actually a really good rule. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, of course. A lot of it comes down to like the way we interact online where, you know, you could post like brand new running shoes. I'm starting today. And people are like, that's so great. That's amazing. Or you could post it like 30 days of, you know, six miles every day. And you're still going to get that's incredible. That's amazing. Like you're going to get the same responses. So if you already got the reward, if you're part of your reward system is doing it for the social credit. Like you already got it. You don't have to do it at all. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Thanks for sharing me that, that great wisdom there. Of course. Did you have anything else? Anything big that you were like, Oh, I missed this. Well, I just wanted to tell you sure. <laughs> um, since, since, um, since the, the locksmith guy, is it Chad? Is it yeah. Chad, right? Yep, Chad. Since he was talking about how people get things wrong in the movies, I just thought I'd throw one out there for you. Um, of course, yeah. So, like, I always love, like, for instance, um, on that movie, have you ever seen that movie, The Accountant, with Ben Affleck, where he plays, like, this <laughs> superhuman, you Yeah, know? he's an assassin and also the accountant. <laughs> Um, he does this awesome scene where he like writes all the numbers on the glass. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, he fills like, like the boardroom. Uh huh. <laughs> with numbers. And I'm like, when I saw that, I'm like, ding! Oh, that's an EBITDA analysis. Oh, but he missed two elements of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, any auditor with their salt would know. But he did this big analysis. It's called EBITDA, and it's the earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. And um, he missed amortization and interest. He didn't include those things. And this huge company would surely buy and sell bonds and would require that. So I'm just looking at it. And then later, he's like, he narrowed it down with a very legitimate skill that fraud examiners use. And that is looking for non-random numbers in invoicing. So like, he's like, oh, look, they use the number seven or nine or whatever too much. But like, that is something that is so very difficult to spot from a high level view that I was like, I'm all calling BS on it, but <laughs> yeah, you're like, you didn't look that so, deep into this. <laughs> right. So that's my movie. Um, you know, like, no, I think but... that's good. I love to reference like Hollywood in a lot of these where I'm like, all right, what does Hollywood get wrong about what you do? And some of them are like, <laughs> no. 
everything. Everything. Right? <laughs> and some of them, it's like, okay, they clearly had someone that gave them like, oh, and this is, you know, this is part of what I do. And they're like, cool, write that down. And they're like, EBITDA. Mm -hmm. And then they forgot a bunch of it. And they're like, well, we tried. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that I've always done is like, if I see fraud somewhere, I write letters and I tell people. So like I, I was on a job one time where I noticed I was like, gosh, for a company that was totally unrelated with what I was doing, I just looking at the invoicing, I'm like, huh, I think there's a lapping scheme going on in that company's department. And so I wrote a letter to the CEO because like, you don't know who to write it to because the manager could be on it. Like, you just so you always have to go to the top, unfortunately, which makes me like a really annoying person, I'm sure, half the time. But so I wrote the CEO letter. It was a public company, and um, she she like apparently enjoyed my letter so much that she took it to like a luncheon and kind of made fun of it. <laughs> and but they did actually have a laughing scheme in their department, and it did help them correct that. So. But she took my letter and she passed it around. And one of the other people at the table, like, took a picture of my creds and I ended up doing some work for them. So you just never know, like, if you if you love something and you just kind of do it because you just can't stop yourself, then, like, it's going to come back to you in a million different ways. But, you know, one of the my favorite cases is like one that I just can't ever seem to let go of. There was this guy who did like a. Um, Ponzi scheme to some locals and he was prosecuted and he was in jail but his victims hired they they came to me and said can you at least explain to us what happened to our money and I was like well I'll do the best I can and so I took what information I could get and I used the Freedom of Information Act to try and get you know some more access to police files and stuff and it all came back heavily redacted and um but I was able to research like 20 different companies and, and I think I was able to explain to them pretty satisfactorily my deductions about what actually happened. But it was, you know, it's one of those cases where like things you can't predict what's going to happen. Like I found like 20 or 30 companies that he was affiliated with either as the registered agent or as um, he like was an owner and I investigated them all. And I like went and I kept finding like every time I went somewhere, I would find it. I'd be like, OK, here's the address. And I go and it would be like an empty field full of sheep or like one time one of the addresses took me to um, a cemetery. <laughs> I'm just like, clearly these are not legitimate businesses here. And I tried to track down an address and I got the city involved and they officially declared to me that that address did not exist. <laughs> so, but like, you never know what's going to happen. But like those people just being able to say, Hey, this is what I think happened to your money. And I don't think you can recover it helped them to like, be like, cause they're like waiting. Is the DA going to recover anything for us? Like, and like, I found out in my investigations that like his assistant, he was a CPA and he really took advantage of people, but his assistant allegedly destroyed eight filing cabinets full of data that made it so that the prosecutors could only prosecute him for less than half of his crimes. It's like, it's so sad, but just that little thing of being able to say, Hey, 
I'm helping you. And this is what I think. And I didn't charge them anything because I didn't recover anything in that case. And I wasn't actually actively investigating the case other than to just say, Hey, this is what happened. But I don't know what I'm saying is fraudster tips can improve your life. And if you will take them and implement them, it will make you a happier person and will give you voice and empower you because I've used these rules many times in my life and I've given you lots of examples of when I have and it's helped me to leap forward in a creative way that helps me towards my dreams. And if I can do that, you can do that too. Absolutely. And that's a great lesson to to leave people on. I'd love to give you some time to kind of plug your book and all the other things that you do so people can find you. Oh, okay. So I'm not, I'm not actively taking on fraud cases anymore, but I do a lot of corporate trainings and I like to entertain people when I do it, but I also like them to be highly relevant. So before I go do a corporate training, I've read the audit, like I'm prepared. I know who all the employees are. I treat it as if I'm doing a case. And like the last corporate training that I did, <laughs> I, I found like, on the first day of our training, like that the IT department was super defensive and um, there were a lot of crossed angry arms in, in the, in the, you know, in the room. And so I was like, well, I knew where their weaknesses was. I knew where they were. And so I was like, I'm going to teach them a lesson and help it become relevant for them. So I went and I added a false employee into their payroll system and put in 80 hours. He was set to be paid. And so when we resumed our training, I showed this to them and they were in like shock. And I was like, you must see where your weaknesses are and, and use that to learn and improve to your advantage. And like, and, um, I'm like hoping they don't, don't prosecute me, <laughs> but of course they wouldn't because, you know, I wasn't actually going to follow through, but like, I'm no master hacker. I knew from reading their audit that there was an employee that left her password in the top left drawer of her desk. So I went and got it at lunchtime and I used it. And, um, and that's how I was able to get around their controls, but it's so easy. Anybody can do that. Any fraudster can do that. And I basically made her an unwitting colluder with me. So, um, so if you need some corporate training, I am telling you, if you have less than 500 employees, you are going to get wrapped off by at least about $100,000 when you when it finally does happen to you. And a little bit of training goes a long way. So, so there's my speech about what I do. And then for my book, which I kind of already threw in there, just if you've enjoyed my stories today, then you will enjoy the wily, crazy character that I've developed who <laughs> is way cooler than me. <laughs> so um, who was on the case to solve some important questions in her own life. So check me out 12 for 12 available everywhere. So thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah. And if people pick up your book, leave reviews wherever you pick it up because that helps your authors grow. It does. Thank you so much for that. Of course. Thank you again for being on the show. You bet. It's been a great time. Thanks so much, Colton. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. Take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible. Please also tell other people that you enjoy the podcast. The audience growth rate has essentially flatlined, and that is a real bummer. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. 
To reach out to me, email dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or send a message to any of the show pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else. If you don't know, I do post the upcoming topics that I'm interviewing for on pages like Facebook and Instagram so you can actually see and ask questions. The October rankings as we enter the final full week are number one, the United States with Oregon and California as the top states. Number two, Australia with New South Wales firmly establishing its place at the top. Number three, the United Kingdom losing the race with Australia lately. Come on, you guys are always number two. I believe in you. Number four, Canada with top province Alberta double the nearest competing province. And number five, Sweden, with top province, Skane, barely outperforming the Vestra Oatland County. Not only are those really hard to pronounce, and I'm doing it surely for your amusement, but can someone tell me why there are provinces and counties being measured side by side like this? Anyway, that's all for now. I'll see you all Thursday for the next optimized episode. Bye bye.